Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 113th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. We had a nice little cool morning here in Dayton. Yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Back on our normal schedule recording in the office, but uh, just a caution, if you hear any drilling or hammering, we apologize because we're just on the tail end of this office build out here. We are on the tail end and there's still some loud noises. So listeners, we apologize for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get right into it, and uh, we're going to have some performance numbers for all of you uh, for the market close as of August 31st. So these monthly numbers will be for the full month of August, and then obviously year-to-date through the end of August. Uh, the data is from StockCharts.com. Uh, the S&P 500 index is, was up 2.9% for the month of August and up 20.4% for the year. The Dow up 1.2% for the month of August and up 15.5% for the year. The NASDAQ up 4% in August and up 18.4% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 2.2% for the month and up 15.6% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, up 1.45% for the month and up 10.66% for the year. The three-month T-bill yield currently sitting at 0.05%, the two-year Treasury yield at 0.2%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is at 1.3%. Um, moving on to big news and headlines from the week. Uh, again, large cap indexes continue to flirt with 52-week highs. Also, U.S. new home sales medium price hit a new high in July, coming in at 390500 up 18% from a year ago. And the low in the past decade, Matt, was back in January of 2011. And the medium price back then was 204200 And this was wow. from Compound Advisor. That's so. just, those are amazing stats. And again, I'll throw it out there. You know, when people try to compare you know, the environment today to 06 and 07, I'm not seeing the lending standards are completely different. They're a lot more stringent. And I'm not seeing the American consumer, quote unquote, tapping into their home equity to fund their lifestyle like they did back in 06 and 07. So there's some different parallels there. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of that of people taking money out, but just because they do have so much equity in their home. Well, now like they cap these 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 home equity lines, I've seen most banks cap it at a hundred thousand. Yeah. And back in 06 and 07, I saw people get three, four hundred thousand dollar home equity lines. Mm-hmm. And just different. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see. Um, and then last but not least, the Federal Reserve's personal consumption expenditures index, which is the index that they use to track inflation, moved up. Uh, 3.6% for data released last week, and that's the index's highest level since 1991. Uh, Chairman Powell assured the markets last week in a press conference that 0% interest rates are here to stay. However, he did indicate that tapering of asset purchases, uh, example, printing money, 
um, could begin in Q4 of this year, but only if the labor market shows continued improvement. So just to give people more background, what, is, what do you mean by, you know, the Fed purchasing assets or, or printing money? Yeah, let's explain this. So listeners, right now, what the Federal Reserve is doing is they are printing $120 billion a month. They are creating this money out of thin air. And so all of a sudden, the money's digitally there in their bank account. They then go out in the market, and they're artificially buying their own bonds, treasury bonds right now. And they're flooding the market with liquidity and keeping interest rates low to spur economic activity. Mm-hmm. What they want to do is start pulling back or tapering those asset purchases. And they're talking about doing it, Mark, sometime in the fourth quarter. So again, October, November, and December, they'll start pulling back on that $120 billion a month. And so they're not going to be flooding the system with as much liquidity. And that could begin to put some upward pressure on yields or interest rates at that time. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're talking about. Yeah. And I know offline, me and you have had this conversation over the past couple of days is generally people would see that as bearish for stocks, right? Because there's not going to be as much money floating around to buy up these assets and increase the prices. But I think I, I'm kind of on the other side of the coin that, you know, if the Fed's comp confident enough to start tapering or start decreasing their asset purchases early, that signals to me that they don't see many problems ahead. Whereas if they're like, nope, we got to keep buying at the same pace that we are, that would make me more nervous because that tells me that, you know, Fed Chair Powell and the rest of the Fed are like, there still might be some rockiness ahead for the next couple of years. So in my opinion, this is actually kind of bullish. I would agree, Mark. I mean, if they don't do it, it indicates that they have information or data that is pointing to some rough roads ahead. Yeah, and, and that we're not out of the woods yet. But this, I think, is I think it's a positive things for you know for the economy and for the market and just for life in general. And with rates as low as they are, I'm just going to say it. If, if rates go up by 1% over the next year, which I think is highly unlikely, mm-hmm. but if it happens, the economy should be able to support that at these, at these levels. And if it can't, something underlyingly is very wrong. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, kick us off with tweets, articles, and research from the week. All right. Let's dig into it, listeners. First is an update on the markets being around a 52-week high. So what spurred this topic for me? There was a tweet by Callie Cox. She's Ally Investment Strategies. Uh, she's an analyst there. Um, and on August 26th, Callie had this. She posted, um, S&P 500 is on track to end August with 53% of its days at record highs. You know, the last time the S&P posted a month with 50% or more days at records? November of 2019. It's happened 13 times in the S&P's history. So one topic, and the reason I picked this, Mark, one topic that seems to be concerning investors lately are all these 52-week highs we keep seeing at the S&P 500 index. During the month of August, you know we saw, again, we saw this happen 13 times in history. Contrary to other areas of our lives where we like to get a deal, the stock market is not necessarily in the same camp. We must remember that the stock market attempts to price in future prospects of a company's value based upon either investors buying or selling those shares in that specific company. Seeing a specific stock near a 52-week high doesn't mean the share price has peaked, 
nor does a stock trading near a 52-week low indicate that the price is done going down. So, Mark, I know this is a topic you definitely have an opinion on. I'm going to let you start with your thoughts. Yeah. So just to clarify, you know, 52 week highs, you know, that's generally used by people in our industry because it's roughly a year. Right. So year highs or year lows. Yep. Um, you know, I've I think I've made it pretty clear on the podcast what my take is on this. And, you know, in my opinion, stocks that are trading are at 52 week highs are doing so for a reason. In the same way with 52-week lows, stocks are trading at 52-week lows for a reason. Yeah, It doesn't necessarily mean that a stock at a 52-week low is cheap or should be bought. And I think that or there's... Or it's done going down. There's Yeah, exactly. And there's several back tests that have been done and research and white papers that have been done that if you implement this strategy, you don't do very well. <laughs> You're trying to catch a falling knife. Right. And, you know, um, everyone always talks about how, you know, if a stock is, you know, going at an out at a new 52 week low or it's down 50 percent for the highs, it's always, um, you know, the conversation of, well, it, ha it has to come back. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. They could go bankrupt. Right. They so can. you always run that risk. So, you know, I think in my personal opinion, it's actually safer to buy stocks at 52 week highs. You know, and if you're buying, you know, companies, large cap stocks, for example, and you just throw up some charts on your computer, go to stockcharts.com or Google stock charts, whatever, you know, and from a stock's inception, every time it's made a new high, follow it and see what it does. Does it keep making new highs? The most successful stocks do, right? That's right. So, you know, like we've talked about before, if you think about the Apples, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles of the world. The larger holdings within the S&P 500 index. Yeah. You know, how many times have they made new all-time highs? And that was, I mean, not necessarily the peak no, <laughs> for I, all those names, right? They yeah, kept going up. They kept going up. This is an important topic. So I just think, yeah, you know, and it's, again, one of those things, like, for example, when we were going through... Um, COVID in March of 2020, you know, one of the things that I was doing was, okay, relative to the market, which stocks are holding up the best? Because in my opinion, those ones are going to be the first to take off once the market hits the bottom. Ding, 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 ding. You know, ding. so it really, you know, stocks that fall more than the S&P 500 during a sell-off, in my opinion, are weaker than the ones that are performing better. But again, it's just that natural thinking, like you said, that, oh, this stock's on sale. It's at a discount. I need to buy it. Sometimes, yeah, that could be true. There's stocks that pull back and that have great buying opportunities, but it's just not true all the time. No, you're exactly right. Now I have a parallel situation I want to give you. What about the listeners right now that have excess cash either in their investment accounts or on the sidelines, and they keep thinking, I can't buy now. Mm -hmm. I gotta wait for a pullback. You might not get it. Even though we haven't had a 5% plus pullback in the S&P 500, doesn't mean that we have to through the rest of the year. You know, you might be waiting for a long time. And what happens psychologically when those pullbacks come? Then it's when it hits 5%, it's like, I'm going to wait for 10%. When it hits 10%, you're going to wait for 15%. Oh, this is nasty. This is because when we haven't had a pullback in a long time, 
it feels worse than it actually mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And why and I just like why do you want to waste time worrying about that? Just like, you know, have a plan that you're investing money periodically, you know, every two weeks or every month. Why like worry about and waste time about waiting for all of these pullbacks? It's just in my opinion, it's a bad use of time. I agree. And I just see a lot of people they wait for the pullback. When the pullback comes, they don't pull the trigger because whatever reasons causing the short-term sell-off they feel is significant and could get worse. And then when they feel comfortable to buy, the market's back at a 52-week high. Yeah, it's just it's an emo- emotional roller coaster that I think most people don't need to be playing that game. I think it's a good topic. I appreciate yeah. your feedback there, Mark. So the next one I got is an update on the personal savings rate. Now, this is a tweet from Liz Ann Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist at Schwab, Mark. So keeping up with my theme of watching data points regarding the American consumer, I have an update mark on the personal savings rate across the U.S. July figures were released last week. The figure came in at plus 9.6% of disposable personal income. That actually is up from June when it came in at 8.8%. The data continues to support the narrative that the American consumer has the ability to spend your thoughts yeah i mean i just i think that the consumer is stronger than people think um and i think you're seeing this with unemployment benefits running out um and there's a lot of jobs that still are open right so it shows that people have cash to spend still if they're not rushing out the door to go get these jobs. I so agree. I think that that falls right in, lo- in line with that narrative and that, you know, this is just another chart that makes sense to me at this point. Excellent. And let's take a step back. Let's remind our listeners how they can access our show notes. We do that, please. Yeah. So on social media, um, Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Facebook or LinkedIn at Jessup Wealth Management. Um, Jenna goes ahead and posts the show notes uh, the day before we actually record the podcast so people can keep up with everything. Jenna's a rock star. I'm looking at her right now. She's giving me the thumbs up. We love Jenna. So next, I have a tweet for listeners. The topic is small caps, Mark. You ready for this? This is a tweet from Liz Young. Um, She's head of investment strategy at SoFi. Okay. So um, Liz's tweet was from August 27th. Again, about small caps. So before we proceed, Mark, can you loosely define what is a small cap stock? Yeah, it's um, a small cap is a company with a, and this is defined by you know whoever defines this stuff, which I'm going to get into here in a second. Um, <laughs> generally, a company whose market capitalization is anywhere between about 300 million and two billion. And okay. again, market capitalization, you take the share price, multiply it by the outstanding shares, you get the market capitalization. Um, you know, typically these names are more volatile than larger or mega cap stocks. Um, and usually their revenue or their sales aren't as diverse as like a mega cap or a large cap that's, you know, multinational in several different countries. You know, a majority, I think, of the small cap names, you know, have exposure to a lot of exposure to America. OK, um, the one thing I want to bring up with you before you get into what you wanted to talk about, and yeah. I think it was I think JC was talking about this the other day somewhere, but. How come we haven't had like 
inflation in market capitalization when we're talking about small caps or large caps or mid caps or mega caps. I'm with you on this. And so I feel like it's been like 300 million to 2 billion for the past 20 years. That's been the definition of a small cap. Like, is that really accurate still? I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that could be controversial. You ready? <laughs> I always love when you start something off like that. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I think, in my opinion, anything under 10 billion in my world is a yeah. small cap. Yeah, and, I would agree. And some people hear that number, they're going to be like, who is this guy? What is he saying? Right. Yeah, I agree. You agree? Mm-hmm. Look at that, Jenna. And I think, I you know, expect and that. I think loosely defined again, like what everyone goes by, mid cap is 2 billion to like that 10 million and that, or 10 billion. And, and I would contend anything under cap. 2 billion is a micro. Yeah, I would say so too. So listeners, why are we saying these things? Because... In our world, in the stock world, these market capitalizations have gone up so dramatically over the past, let's say, 12 years since the great financial crisis Mm -hmm. that we have to change the definition of this. Right. And the reason a lot of these stocks are more volatile is because the shares aren't trading hands as often. Mm -hmm. So the price discovery is just not as efficient in small caps as it is in more liquid, large size Yeah, and a good way to kind of explain it is, you know, if you're selling um, a pair of shoes and I'm the only one that is willing to buy your shoes, I can pretty much name my price. And if you want to sell the shoes and you have to accept my price that I want, or else you say, okay, I'm not going to sell it. I'm going to hang on to it longer. That's an example of a small or a micro cap where there's not as many willing buyers and sellers of a stock. Whereas if you take a name like one of the mega cap tech names in the example of going back to selling shoes, there's hundreds of thousands and even maybe millions of people willing to buy those shoes from you. So they're going to compete on price to buy those shoes to get them right. So you're going to get a more competitive offer, right? That's right. So, you know, that's why. And you can buy more if you want to buy more of it. So that's just an example of kind of how that, I guess, works out in the markets. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I appreciate you defining small caps because I think that's just not a term that's talked about enough. Yeah. Okay. Smaller size companies. So this was Liz's um, tweet on August 27th. She says, quote, you can always count on me for a positive spin on small caps. Forward P.E. on the S&P 600, which is the small cap index that Stern and Porsche tracks, relative to the S&P 500, the large cap index that Stern and Porsche has, is at a 20-year low. So um, she notes very quickly that valuation can be a bad timing mechanism, but does matter for long-term performance expectations. What's forward PE? All right. So price to earnings. So it is a way to judge how much I'm paying for this stock for the actual net earnings they're making. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so traditionally, I'd say, especially in the uh, late 90s, uh, in 2000s, a very preferred method of judging how expensive a stock was, was purely the P.E. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't looking at anything else. And people would look at it and say, well, the market as a whole is, is trading at this valuation. Is this stock more or less expensive? But I'll give it to you in a very easy way of understanding it. If XYZ company was trading at a 15 P.E., 
and they never grew their earnings and they remained stagnant and you bought, um, if you put money in for that one year of earnings worth, it would take you 15 years to recoup your full investment. Mm -hmm. And so people tend to look at the market and say, is this stock at a lower high PE compared to the market? And right now, the valuations are what people are paying for earnings in small caps compared to large size companies. Is that a 20 year low? Mm -hmm. And that goes to show you how out of favor small size companies are right now. Yeah. So what are the reasons for that? Well, right now you had COVID disproportionately hurt small size companies with all the shutdowns, mm -hmm. disproportionately assisted large size companies. That's a big reason why small caps are out of favor lately. Yeah. And they and they just had and they had a massive run up up until about February of 2021. So after you have that big of a run up, you know, I think it's healthy to digest the gains. They've kind of just been chopping sideways for the past six months. Yeah. And again, you know, so I agree with the disclaimer that valuation on its own is a bad timing mechanism. But small cap valuations are low versus large size companies. I find it interesting, Mark. Again, I know as our firm's uh, chief investment officer, you make these uh, these decisions on our exposure to small caps. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to share with listeners? Yeah, I and and you know, I know that you're not too fond of valuation ratios like the PE, and I'm you know I'm not either. So um, I kind of more or less look at it based on you know the type of environment that we're in. So if we expect to be in a risk on environment where stocks are going to do well, then I'm going to assume that small caps are going to do well because, you know, in my opinion, that is a risky, riskier area of the market than larger mega cap names than like the S&P 500. So if we're going to be in good times, I would expect over the long term, small caps to do really well. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of evidence out there that has been done to show that coming out of recessionary periods that small caps do outperform over a long period of time over the first couple of years. So, you know, I just think that, you know, small caps are just taking a breather from their huge run up up, up until about February of this year. And, you know, I think that it's just a matter of time before they kick it into gear again. Love it. And again, not a specific recommendation to buy or sell a specific sector of the market, but we are just objectively looking at that and comparing it to large size companies. Yeah. Mark, back to you. All right. So uh, the first thing I have is just a quote I wanted to share from a Chinese proverb that I saw on the chart report. Here we go. And it I said this. this, fish see the bait, but not the hook. Men see the profit, but not the peril. Love that. So that just goes back to how I think everyone looks at the investing industry as sexy and sophisticated. And especially in the past year or two, people have the perception that it's really easy to make money in, in the stock market or it's in not. cryptocurrencies or in, you know, currencies or whatever you're investing in. Um, but, you know, they they just see the glory that everybody is getting from, you know, hitting big on a couple big investments that they don't necessarily see what goes into that emotionally and from a monetary standpoint you know um i just think it was just just kind of caught my eye and just made me chuckle a little bit because i was like that's pretty good timing for what has been going on with 
cryptos and NFTs and all that stuff over the past, you know, two years almost now. Yeah, you know, everyone's trying to chase everyone else's rare success story and trying to replicate it. And statistically, it's not realistic. Yeah. So I just thought that that was a good one to share it. Yep. Um, next thing was a snippet from an article written by Taylor Schulte from Define Financial. And the title of this was The Real Risk of Investing. Um, so I just want to read a couple lines from this. He says, there's no such thing as no risk when it comes to investing. Risk is a trade-off. When an investor seeks to avoid one type of risk, they're inevitably exposing themselves to a different risk. Ha! For example, investors seeking to minimize short-term risk are by default accepting the long-term risk that their portfolio may not keep up with inflation. Amen. Rarely is the latter risk discussed. Amen. The whole point of investing is to achieve our financial goals, which I think is is lost a lot. People want to try to chase the highest returns, but all you have to do is make enough to reach your goals, right? But by seeking shelter from short-term volatility, investors may materially decrease the probability of reaching those goals. As Howard Marks has said, we have to consider the risk of not taking enough risk. Just because a strategy that avoids market volatility makes us feel warm and fuzzy doesn't make it a prudent long-term strategy. It sounds obvious, but a portfolio that doesn't produce enough return to attain our financial goals cannot be a prudent strategy regardless of our feelings. For instance, if you were to own 100% bonds right now, it probably wouldn't be too long before you realize there's an issue because your portfolio and income aren't keeping up with your lifestyle. Spot on. So spot on. Yeah. So again, we've talked about it several times on the podcast, so I won't spend too much time on it. But again, it just goes back to the fact that while there's risk in being too aggressive, there also is risk in being too conservative on the flip side. Especially in this interest rate environment, listeners, we've been in the last several years. I mean, let's face reality. The statistics of interest rates normalizing to what they've been on a 50 or 60 year average it's going to take time. Yeah. And so there is significant risk in being way too conservative if you have a higher withdrawal rate with the inflation we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. And again, I said it many times in the podcast before, inflation's a silent killer. No one's talking about. Just because you have 100 grand in your bank account now doesn't mean that 100 grand one year from now or five years from now is going to buy the same amount of goods and services. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This was from an article written by Heidi Rivera on July 2nd this year titled Investments versus Student Debt, Where to Put Your Extra Cash. And this is always a hot topic that I wanted to bring up since the Biden administration uh, recently extended the pause uh, on federal student loan payments until January 31st of 2022. Um, so I thought that this was timely. All right. Uh, she starts off by saying student loans are making money in the stock market may capture more of your attention, but they shouldn't necessarily be the first financial goal you focus on. You have to start by taking an honest inventory of your finances, says Gregory Giardino, a financial advisor at JM Franklin and Company. Ask yourself, do you have a stable income or does it fluctuate each month? Do you have an emergency fund? Are you contributing to an individual or employer-sponsored retirement plan? As a general rule, financial planners say that you should have an emergency fund worth three to six months of non-discretionary expenses, enough to pay all of your essential expenses plus any monthly financial obligations. 
But if you're a freelancer and your income fluctuates, Victoria LeBlanc, who's a CFP at Raymond James, recommends building a nest egg of at least eight months. Um, so I think this is one thing, Matt, that a lot of people want to just jump to investing right away. And I'm more for building things slowly and making sure that people have an emergency fund because when you don't have an emergency fund, that's when you get into trouble. That's when you take on unnecessary credit card debt, you take a personal loan, you stop contributing to your 401k or your IRA. So in my opinion, this is the first thing that everyone should be tackling is making sure that they have an emergency fund that if something does come up, it doesn't affect their other parts of their financial life. Well said. And I would agree that the more unstable or lumpy your income is, the more period that that right. emergency fund has to cover. Right. I agree with that. If you want to maximize your savings, make sure you stash your money in a high yield savings account or a CD since these two offer higher returns than traditional checking or savings account. Um, so again, I personally use Marcus by Goldman Sachs. I know Ally Financial has high yield online savings accounts, and you could even look into the I bonds that we talked about last week mm -hmm. on episode 112. So if people want to check out more about I bonds, um, go ahead and listen to the financial planning topic a great of one. the week uh, from episode 112. Um, obviously start by contributing enough to your 401k to get your company match with the goal to build up to 15% uh, of your salary, uh, saving for retirement every year. And if you don't have a 401k, obviously try to max out an IRA or a Roth IRA, which is up to $6,000 per year per person. Uh, the next step is figuring out how much money you've got left over after meeting all of your basic financial obligations. And that to me is really important because I don't think a lot of people consider contributing to your IRA or your 401k as basic financial obligations. But in my opinion, that is a it basic needs to be. financial obligation. Because in retirement, you can't rely upon Social Security to pay your bills. No. You got to self-rely. You got to take income from what you've saved. Right. And starting in the last 10 years of your runway before you retire is not enough time. No. And, that, and I heard that. I don't know where I heard this the other day, but I heard... Um, it was someone that was it was on a podcast. Someone was talking about um, pros and cons of 529s and saving for kids colleges. And this specific financial advisor was like, I always tell my clients that you can always take a loan for college, but you can't take a loan for retirement. So it's just that well said. the mindset of you need to prioritize your retirement first before your kid's college or helping them get a new car or I feel you know, very whatever. strongly about that statement. Right, right. Um, so where am I here? Uh, if you find you're tight on money, then it's best to bet. It's your best bet to put any extra money that comes your way toward paying off your debt. LeBlanc says to remember that although investing can earn you a higher return than what you currently pay on interest on your student loans, there is always the risk that you will lose money on your investments and still owe the debt. And this is something that I wanted to get your opinion on because I well, have you a were feeling, investing in these meme stocks. Yeah. And I have a feeling you're going to have a different take on this. All right. Here's my two cents. If you have a solid long term game plan and you're not going and investing in dicey stuff that is has intraday volatility of double digits and you have a longer term time horizon, you should feel comfortable about that. Yeah. But what's happening right now in society is everyone's investing in what they see is hot, what their friends are doing their get rich quick scheme. 
And this stuff is not realistic. The stuff that is getting all the press, these investments in general, are all a bunch of crap. <laughs> They're not good. The fundamentals are horrible mm -hmm. in a lot of these names. And that's the concern I have is that people try to lump and put the money that they need in these hot, get-rich-quick schemes, whether it's uh, unknown crypto names, whether it's unknown meme stocks, and I use the term meme because that's what the mm -hmm. industry is using right now, and you know, avoid that stuff. Go with some blue-chip names or solid names. Are they as fun or sexy to talk about? No. But those are the names that you need to focus on. Yeah, I agree. Or just simply just buying an index fund if you yeah. don't want to deal with it just to track the market. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, this is, and again, I don't know exactly how this interview went down with LeBlanc, um, but, you know, if you do have a long-term game plan, I think history shows that, you know, the stock market goes up and you make money over time, but you just have to be in it for the long haul, right? That's right. So I don't think you have to worry about losing money if you have a proper plan in, in place. That's right. And remember, just because you invest in, let's say you have a five-year time horizon, I'm going to invest in maybe in three to five years, I'll take part of that balance or all of it and pay off yeah, my student yeah, debt. Right. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yep. As long as you're not going into those speculative areas, I just generalized. Right. So moving on um, to deciding if you should be investing or paying off student debt. Um, both Giordino and LeBlanc say you should compare the interest rate you're being charged by your student loan lender versus possible investment returns. Predicting investment returns can be tricky, but you can use history as a guide. Over the past 140 years, U.S. stocks averaged 10-year returns of about 9%, according to Goldman Sachs. Um, but Goldman Sachs now says we can expect 6% going forward. So this is why Giordino says that if the interest rate on your student loans exceeds 6%, then it may make sense to tip the scale towards paying off student debt. Again, I just want to remind people that I think we've had like 5 or 6% return estimates by these big banks for the past six or seven years. You just, you just took my point. I was going to throw it out so, there. So I don't know. I would use a rate closer to seven to nine to be honest i think it's good um they say also keep in mind the role that taxes play with student loan interest the tax codes can work in your favor as you may be able to claim a deduction of up to 2500 on interest paid that essentially gives you lower after tax interest rate um the next thing to consider is what type of student loans you have. So if you have public or private loans, and as we all know, private loans tend to have higher interest rates than public loans. So it might make sense to pay off those private loans and just service the public loans if you have them and yep. invest whatever you have over. Um, and Peter Lazaroff was also a contributor to this um, this article who we've had on the podcast Big before. Big fan of Peter. Yeah. And, you know, bottom line, he says that it, these these things don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can do a little bit of both. Right. And again, it goes back to the stuff that we've talked about before, you know, do what's smart, but also do what makes you comfortable and emotionally you'll be able to deal with. Right. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. It could be a little bit of both if that makes the most sense for you. So, um, you know, I think people can drive themselves nuts trying to figure out what to do invest or pay off the debt but if you're not sure pay off a little bit of both yeah and tackle the the private ones first mm -hmm. yep 
Um, that's it for the financial planning topic of the week. Matt, anything else before we wrap up? Um, two things. One, the next Fed meeting is on September 21st and 22nd. So that's the next time where we're going to get an update on this tapering, um, cutting back on printing of money that most likely will occur sometime in the fourth quarter. So I think the markets will be focused on that the third week of September. Obviously, uh, traditionally after Labor Day, trading volumes tend to go up. Volatility tends to go up as a lot of people come back from vacation, traders in the Wall Street community. And um, we got one month left in Q3. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in to episode 112 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a happy and safe Labor Day weekend, and we'll be back with you next week. Mark and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.